0: Well, if you got a Bible with you this morning or in front of you this morning, I do encourage you to open it to Daniel chapter 5. We're continuing to make our way through the book of Daniel together in in a series that we've called Kingdoms in Conflict. So let me sort of begin by way of review. If we were to put chapter headings over the chapters that we've covered the last several weeks. I think a good chapter heading for chapter 2 would be God reveals. A a fitting summary or heading for chapter 3 would be God rescues. And then last week we looked at chapter 4, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and we we saw clearly in that passage that really the main idea or theme is that God rules. If we were to continue with the alliteration, when we come to chapter 5, I think a fitting heading for chapter 5 would be, God rejects. Now, that might be the least popular of all of those ideas, but it is an important idea that we ought to explore. And it is, in fact, what we see in Daniel chapter 5 as we look at King Belshazzar. God rejects. So with that spoiler alert out of the way, let's read Daniel chapter 5. And I'm going to read the entire chapter in one shot because of the way we're going to make our way through it today. So here now, the reading of God's word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, "'Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom.'" Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation." But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered, or then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, there is a lot in that chapter that we might think about, but I want to focus our attention on just two main ideas. The first one is that appearances can be deceiving. Now, I realize you don't need to tune into a live stream to know that. It's a truism. But it is one of the major themes in the book of Daniel. Those things that look so secure, like the kingdom of Babylon are really nothing more than a house of cards. And there's a great contrast between the way this chapter begins and the way this chapter ends. It begins by saying, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them. That's something you do when you are feeling secure. The chapter ends by telling us that very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. What appeared strong and unshakable was gone in an instant. Now, I'm going to drill down into that idea that appearances can be deceiving in a little more depth, but maybe I should just stop to make a brief historical note. Because we might be a little bit surprised when we come to Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. And the reason we are surprised is because we're suddenly transported 30 years into the future. The first four chapters of the book of Daniel were taken up with King Nebuchadnezzar. But now a new king is introduced seemingly without any warning. Belshazzar is the king. Now, as an aside, if you are interested in questions of historicity and the like, the case of Belshazzar is actually a fascinating study. For many years, critical biblical scholars questioned the authenticity of the account as we find it here. And it was common to hear things like, look, we have lots of historical material from this time period. But no mention of a king named Belshazzar, other than this reference in the book of Daniel. Therefore, this account can't be taken as historical And in fact, if you look at the Babylonian king lists, Nabonidus is the one who is listed as the last king of Babylon. And so many critical scholars thought this biblical account was obviously in error. And that opinion held sway. Until an archaeological discovery revealed that King Nabonidus had a son named, you guessed it, Belshazzar. And that Nabonidus actually appointed Belshazzar to be his vice-regent or co-regent over Babylon while he was absent for a period of 10 years. So with that out of the way, let's take a closer look at Belshazzar and this idea that appearances can be deceiving. I see that played out in three main ways in this chapter. The first one is that opulence is often a mask for emptiness. Now, Belshazzar's opulence is on full display here. Verse 1 tells us that King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. The the number 1,000 is a round number. it's, It's there to help us understand the massive scale of this party that he threw. Everyone who was anyone was in attendance. Verses 2 and 3 go on to tell us that in in addition to those officials or those thousand lords, Belshazzar's wives and concubines were also there. And so this party prominently featured women, wine, and worship. Now, the wine played its role in verse 2. It says Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, or when he came under the influence of the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So Belshazzar is filled with liquid courage. And in that moment, he asks that the vessels that had been taken out of Jerusalem, the ones taken from the temple, be brought so that he and his lords and ladies can, could drink from them. The modern technical term for what Belshazzar was doing here is flexing, right? He's flexing. He's showing off to everyone in attendance... Look at the power I have. I just snap my fingers and even the vessels of those conquered gods are brought to my palace and I can drink from them freely. So he takes those vessels and they begin making toasts to the Babylonian gods out of them. Now, listen, if we were there at the time, we would have been impressed I mean, seeing that kind of opulence and arrogance creates a kind of impression, doesn't it? His palace party with a thousand lords and ladies makes the rich, rich kids of Instagram seem like child's play. But evaluating Belshazzar's life requires a different kind of metric. Now, we could just compare him with Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor referred to here as his father, because he really was the father of the Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar built an impressive empire. As far as we know, Belshazzar didn't do anything other than throw this huge drinking party. But it's not really the comparison with Nebuchadnezzar that shows the emptiness of Belshazzar's life. When Daniel gives the interpretation of the writing that appeared on the wall. He says this in verse 27 about one of the words that was inscribed there. He says, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. What a tragic picture of a life. What that verse is telling us that what matters in the end is not the evaluation of others, what they might think about us, how grand an impression we might make on them, What matters in the end is God's evaluation of Belshazzar's life. And so God weighs Belshazzar on his scale and finds that he doesn't weigh anything at all. Now, most of us don't like stepping on scales for a different reason, right? We don't want that number to be too high. But here God takes this king with all of his opulence and all of his arrogance and he puts him on his scale and he finds he doesn't weigh enough. You can't help but wonder how many people will receive that same rendering. I mean, we live in a superficial age. People are famous simply for being famous. They haven't done anything of substance. Their worth is based on the number of Instagram followers they have, the amount of influence they have. But this isn't just an important word for a weightless king or for Instagram influencers. All of us will be measured and weighed by God. So we have to constantly remind ourselves of Jesus' words. And he said, don't be fooled. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, often those things, we try to fill the emptiness in our lives with them. We try to fill the emptiness with more stuff. God will assess the worth of our life with a completely different standard. He will weigh us with his scale. Will we be found wanting? The second way we see the deception of appearances here, and that is in the truth that idols will always disappoint. So verse 4 goes on to tell us, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, it's hard to know exactly what is meant by that. Does it mean that they literally toasted the gods of silver and gold and wood and stone? Raise a glass to all the material comforts and luxuries we're enjoying at this moment. Or is it that they praised the Babylonian gods, who in reality were nothing more than the materials they were made of, gold and silver, iron, wood and stone? Well, I don't know that we can say with certainty one way or another, but what we can say is that the gods Belshazzar trusted in proved utterly helpless In his time of crisis, the moment that hand appeared and wrote on the wall, those gods failed instantly. No amount of silver or gold could help him. There was no deliverance from Marduk or from any of the other Babylonian gods. And this, in fact, is the end of all who trust in false gods. The prophet Isaiah describes the fate of those who put their faith in that which cannot save. And he says it this way. They are turned back and utterly put to shame. Who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Now, we've been over this many times, but an idol is not just that which is carved out of metal or wood or stone. An idol is that which you look to for security, it's that which you look to for comfort in distressing situations. And for Belshazzar, it wasn't just those idols of gold and wood and stone that he turned to. When the hand appeared and began writing on the wall, Belshazzar is rightly terrified. And what he does in response is he assembles all of the religious gurus he can think of, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. Maybe they can give some answers. Maybe they can give some comfort. But they can't. None of the things he was tempted to trust in could help him in any way. And this was true not just for Belshazzar, but actually for everyone living in Babylon at the time. Now, if you had have lived in Babylon at this time, you would have felt very secure. There was lots that you could trust in. You would have felt like there was nothing that could touch you. See, Nebuchadnezzar II had built three walls around Babylon at the heights of 40 feet. The walls were said to be so broad that you could run chariot races around those walls. The Ishtar Gate in the wall of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was claimed by some to be greater than any of the listed wonders of the ancient world. The Greek historian Herodotus claimed that Babylon surpasses in wonder any city in the known world. He specifically praised the walls. He said they were 56 miles or 90 kilometers long, 80 feet or 24 meters thick, and 320 feet or 97 meters high. Now, it's generally believed that Herodotus exaggerated the majesty of Babylon to a certain degree. But other writers also noted the magnificence of its walls, its security. Again, they were wide enough to race chariots around them. Imagine being surrounded by a wall like that. I mean, just imagine the sense of security you would feel. The wall was basically impenetrable. There was no way any foreign army was going to march up to it and assail the city. But in 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, led a successful attack against Babylon known as the Battle of Opez. Since the walls of the city were impenetrable, Cyrus had his army divert the water from the Euphrates, which ran through the city upstream, and he basically marched into the city underneath those walls. All of their imagined security was gone in an instant. Now, you might say, well, that's a fascinating piece of history and all, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I think it's good for us to ask ourselves where our security comes from. What is it that gives us a sense of security? What do we turn to in distressing times or situations? See, there's a way that every one of us can apply this. There's something we all ought to think about. Proverbs 18.11 says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination." I thought about that verse recently when I heard about the death of Larry Flint on February 10th, just two and a half weeks ago. Larry Flint was eulogized in the New York Times as the founder of Hustler magazine and one who amassed a $400 million fortune from his pornographic empire. It was common for those living in Beverly Hills to see Larry Flint rolling around or wheeling around in his gold-plated wheelchair or being driven around in his Rolls-Royce with a vanity plate that said, Hustler won. But none of those things were of any value in the end. None of the things he looked to for security and comfort could comfort in death. Now, most of us don't have the resources of Babylon at our disposal. We don't have the wealth of a Larry Flint. Our fortifications might not be as impressive... But I think there's a temptation for every one of us to think that our wealth somehow fortifies us or makes us more secure, or maybe if we had more of it, we'd feel more secure. Solomon, who should know about stuff like this, tells us that is just in our imagination. It's pure fantasy. The rich man imagines he's got this unscalable wall, but he doesn't. So can I just say to you that if you are putting your trust in your wealth or your resources, all of that can be taken from you in an instant. Now, your idol might be something else. It might be something else that you look to for security or for comfort, but that too can be taken. All of our idols will disappoint in the end. Third way we see the deception of appearances is in the fact that position is just an illusion. So Belshazzar was the king. That was his position. But the picture that emerges of him in this chapter shows that it's just an illusion. So he uses his position to gather all of his lords and ladies together. The wine is flowing freely, but God literally crashes the party. In verse 5 and 6, we read this immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now when it says his limbs gave way, it literally reads his loins were loosened. Now, whether that means he filled his adult diaper or something else is debated by scholars, actually. But it's, whatever it is, it's not a very dignified picture. And yet seen, he, he tries to cling to his position as king and to his power. In verse 7, it says, Whoever, so after he calls in the wise men, the enchanters, the astrologers, whoever reads this writing, shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Right? He's he's afraid, but he still thinks his position will get him out of this situation. And so he makes the offer to reward whoever can interpret the writing. Look, you'll be dressed in purple. You'll have a gold chain around your neck, right? You'll look like an 80s hip-hop star. You'll be made the third ruler in the kingdom. Nabonidus was one, Belshazzar was two, and whoever can interpret the writing becomes number three. But none of the wise men can interpret it. And so the queen, probably the queen mother, comes in. She tells Belshazzar to call for Daniel, who she remembers interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is summoned, but even when he calls Daniel in, you can see Belshazzar's feeble attempt to retain and use his position in verse 13. It says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Right? Look, I'm the king. You're one of the exiles. Let me just remind you of my position and your position. the contrast between Belshazzar and Daniel is a stark one. Now, years ago, I remember hearing a sermon comparing Saul and David, Israel's first two kings. And that comparison ran along the lines of Saul had the title, but David had the testimony. And I think we see something similar here. Belshazzar had the position, but Daniel had the power. So Belshazzar makes the same offer to Daniel. Look, if you can interpret the writing, you get the wrap outfit and all that that comes with it. And Daniel gives his answer in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So he's not interested in the clothes or the position even though he's given those things in the end. But even more important than that is what Daniel says to Belshazzar in verse 18. And what he says is this, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. See, what Belshazzar needed to understand And what every one of us needs to understand is that the positions we have have been given to us. Or maybe more accurately, they've been lent to us. And if we needed a reminder of that, the final verse of the chapter should be sufficient. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. You see, position is just an illusion. You and I are ultimately not defined by our position. If we define ourselves that way, what will happen when that position is taken away from us? But even more than that, we need to remember that we all stand on level ground before God. And and what matters is not the position we might occupy in the kingdom of man. What matters is the position we occupy in the kingdom of God. Well, There's a second major thing we discover here in Daniel chapter 5 which is that God's kindness may lead to repentance, but it might not. I adapted that point from what we read in the New Testament. As a warning to those who took their security for granted, the Apostle Paul said this, he said, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and in heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness, his patience, his mercy, those things are meant to lead us to repentance. But it's possible that rather than responding with repentance, we respond with hardness of heart. We actually see both of those possibilities played out in this chapter, and we see it in the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now, the truth is we actually encounter, we've, we've actually encountered much of what we read in Daniel chapter 5 before in this book, or already in this book. I mean, the king has a dream or a vision, or in this case, he's writing on the wall. The meaning of the dream or vision is not clear to him. So he calls in all of his wise men to try and interpret it. None of them can. And then as a last resort, he calls in Daniel, who gives the interpretation and the meaning. Lots of similarities in the accounts we've met so far. The difference comes in the response of the kings. And so before interpreting the writing, Daniel retells Nebuchadnezzar's story. Now, we looked at that story last week, but listen again to verses 18 to 21. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, his kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But... Now, we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's humbling last week in chapter 4. Remember how that chapter ended. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, God's kindness may lead to repentance as it did for Nebuchadnezzar. But it's possible that we interpret God's kindness and patience instead as a license to do evil as Belshazzar did. And as we reflect on that, I want to draw your attention to two things we ought to understand from the life of Belshazzar. The first is simply that right information doesn't guarantee right response. Listen carefully to what Daniel said to Belshazzar in verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. As one writer put it, his problem wasn't ignorance. It was insolence. It wasn't that he hadn't heard What had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, his father, his predecessor, was that he didn't care to make any adjustments or changes to his own life. As a matter of fact, his calling for the vessels from the Lord's temple and toasting the Babylonian gods out of them shows that he did know. He just chose to mock the Lord. And I think this is an important reminder for those who subscribe to the information fallacy. The idea that the solution to our problems is always more information, always more education. Now, obviously, education plays an important role in life. But having the right information doesn't necessarily lead to transformation. A few years back, I read a book entitled Change or Die. And in the introduction of that book, the author says that 80% of the healthcare budget in the United States is related to five behavioral issues. Too much smoking, too much drinking, too much eating, too much stress, and not enough exercise. Now, none of that will come as a shock to any of you. We all know this. We hear this information all the time. And yet, we don't make changes. In that same book, there's a chapter on heart patients. More than one and a half million people undergo a coronary bypass graft or an angioplasty surgery every year in the United States. One and a half million people. And every one of them is given the same set of instructions afterwards. Look, if you want to keep the pain from coming back, if you don't want to have to repeat this surgery, if you want to stop the course of your heart disease from killing you, you have to switch to a healthier lifestyle. But very few do. In fact, if you look at the statistics of people after they've had a coronary artery bypass graft two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyle. 90%. Right information doesn't guarantee right response. What Daniel says to Belshazzar is, you knew all this. And this is true in every area of life. It's certainly true in the way we we relate to God. Romans 1 gives us these sobering words about those who rebel against God. And tell me if it doesn't sound an awful lot like Belshazzar. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Is the problem for those who rebel against God a lack of information? It's not. It's that they suppress the truth because of the hardness of their hearts. And you, Belshazzar, Have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Now, I'm laying extra stress on it because I think those are the words that some of you need to hear. Your problem is not a lack of information, your problem is a lack of repentance. I mean, you hear the truth week after week, year after year, and yet your heart remains closed to God. And the question for you is the same one Belshazzar faced. Will you humble yourself and submit to God? Second specific thing I want to say to you out of the life of Belshazzar is don't wait until it's too late. Lots of people don't realize that our contemporary expression, the writings on the wall, actually comes from this passage in Daniel chapter 5. And that expression doesn't just mean that something might happen. It means that it's already assured of happening. When the writing is on the wall, it's too late. Now, what most think as the reason the wise men could not read the writing is because ancient Aramaic, like ancient Hebrew used only consonants, and that the consonants written on the wall were probably just kind of strung together with no breaks in them. So it's hard to know sort of where one word stopped and and where the next one began. But Daniel comes in, he can both read it and interpret it. The correct reading as he gives it to us is many, many, tekel, and parson. The English equivalent would be something like numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. That's interpretations given in verses 26 to 28. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, the fulfillment of those words happened almost instantly. Verse 30 says, that very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Now, maybe that seems unfair. I mean, it's so sudden, isn't it? But it wasn't. Belshazzar knew all this. The book of Proverbs contains this warning. It's for all of us. Whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. See, the destruction seems sudden. I mean, it happens in an instant. That's how it happened for Belshazzar. But it was actually preceded by many warnings. In Belshazzar's case, his destruction was preceded by a long period of God's grace. And there's a warning for us in that. The warning is that if we wait until the writing is on the wall, if we remain stiff-necked in the face of many rebukes, if we presume upon God's grace, it may well prove too late. As I think about this story of Belshazzar, I couldn't help but think of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. It says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully... And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you'll have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Look, that's a sobering thought for all of us. This very night, your life could be required of you. So I want to say do not wait until it's too late. Respond to God's gracious invitation, humble yourself, and submit your life. To him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for your patience, which seems to know no limits. And yet we know there will come a day when that patience is done. And you will say to every one of us, this very night, your life is taken. So, God, I pray that we would not be those who harden our heart in the face of your kindness and your mercy and your patience, but we would be those who humble ourselves and submit our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.